So many people think the church is a building, but it's not. Uh, the church is us. We meet in a building, but not today. Today we are heading out. I think there's close to a thousand people heading out to 33 different work projects all over the city. The church is playing offense, trying to share the love of God. It's a great day. Excited about this. I hope you're a part of it. We are going to the Katzmeyer School, and we are going to paint cyclone fences and do some cleanup in their playground area. Hi, we are the O'Neills, and we are going to Love, Inc. Kids Closet, and we have two boys, and we know how it can get pretty expensive to go back to school and all the clothes you need to buy, and we wanted to help other families. Here at Foss Beach Park, taking this incredible facility, and it is incredible. Acres and acres and acres on the lake, and we're giving a little bit of a tune-up. We're painting baseball diamond fence in silver bright, we're painting the two bathrooms, we're painting a couple of swing sets, we got some picnic tables, we're painting a hundred parking blocks as you come in. Thank you so much for serving, it matters. We were created to serve, the world works better when we serve, the world needs the church, it needs the hope of God, so what you have done makes a difference, thanks so much. Yes, thank you so much for serving. Uh, we are going to be reaching out, reaching out with the good news of uh, God's love, reaching out to love and serve people, especially those in need. Uh, last year, Serve Your City was a great event, and uh, we are excited to be praying for August 12th. We need good weather for these, this to work as well as it did last year. Looks like we have a number of uh, other churches that will be joining us this year, so we're excited about Again, fueling a movement that reaches people in Renew's community. So, August 12th. Welcome, uh, greetings to those joining us upstairs and at Crossroads and at Highland Park. So, this uh, during the REACH campaign in the, in the earlier part of the year, we had daily readings that were written by uh, members of the congregation. And, and one particular morning I got up and as I was uh, sort of getting the day started, I glanced at the devotion. And it said, uh, I grew up in the church. There was a woman here. She goes, I uh, grew up in the church. So I had the distinct disadvantage of thinking I understood what the Christian life was about. She went on to say, what I believed was true was that I needed to believe and behave. And if I did, then God would take care of me. Believe and behave. That is that is classic religion. That is uh, very much what the Judaizers, this group that blew into Galatia after Paul had established the church there, that's very much what the Judaizers were selling. That is what Luther believed even as a, as a, as a priest and as a student, as a professor of theology, it is what he was advocating. It is what the Wesley brothers, who were missionaries, came from Europe over here uh, in the 1700s, Eastern Seaboard, started orphanages, preaching, uh, uh, preaching throughout the, the colonies. It's what they believed. It is uh, very much what lots of people today believe. Perhaps it's what you believe. I need to believe and behave. 
That's what God expects. Believe and behave. And if I believe and behave, then uh, when I die, God will let me go to heaven. There was a study done uh, a few years ago by Christian Smith, a sociologist then in North Carolina, now at Notre Dame, and, and a colleague of his, Melinda Denton. And they surveyed uh, thousands of young people in the church, thousands of millennials in the church. And what they came out and said at the end of this study was, uh, it's interesting that many thousands of young people today who are in the church do not subscribe to the basic tenets of historic Christianity. Instead, he described them as moral therapeutic deists. They believe that they should live good lives, they should be moral, and that if they did, that they would be happy, which was very much the goal, and that God was there if you really got in a really particularly ugly jam, but he wasn't particularly interested in day-to-day life. He wasn't someone you would have a relationship with. He wasn't somebody who was answering prayers on a regular basis. He was more of a deistic God as opposed to a theistic God. And so they said, there are lots of moral therapeutic deists today in the church. And they go, these young people believe what they believe because this seems to be the lives that their parents are living. Moral therapeutic deism. Believe and behave. That is classic religion. So last week I opened by saying that um, religion is believing that following rules and rituals makes us good, better than others, and qualifies us for God's love. I then said, we are all religious. It's sort of the way we're wired. And that additionally, uh, there are some upsides to religion, but it is ultimately a failed project. It doesn't work. We cannot be good enough. We can never pull it off. We are too broken. Uh, indeed, the starting assumptions of the Christian faith are profoundly anti-religious. We cannot reach up. God has to reach down. That is the basis of Christianity. So, This is unfolding in our study of Galatians. If you have a Bible you want to turn there, we're going to begin with verse 6 of chapter 1. So this letter is a letter written by the Apostle Paul back to some churches that he started early in his ministry. They're in northern Turkey, what's today northern Turkey. And uh, and he uh, was writing to them because he has heard that they have pivoted. And they have pivoted from what he said to them, what he taught them, which uh, is faith equals salvation plus works. Instead, what they are now signing up for, and I think we've got a chart on this, is that faith plus works equals salvation. That is what they are moving towards. Faith plus works, believe and behave, equals a right relationship with God. And Paul is very clear, this is not it, no. Instead, the equation is supposed to be faith equals salvation plus works. So in this context, the works, the letter that Paul is writing to the Galatians, is responding to first century kinds of works. 
And first century kinds of works, the things that you did in order to appease God, in order to win God's favor, it was circumcision, it was certain dietary practices, it was following certain uh, holy days that the Jews advocated. Uh, Those are not our issues, but it sort of doesn't matter. So today in more conservative churches, the general vibe is you definitely need to behave. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do, because uh, your, your involvement in the church, your relationship with God, very much pivots on uh, being proper. And there's a, there's a whole little subcultural code that defines what proper looks like. In liberal churches, it's, it's alike but different. And so now it's a different code. It's a different set of responsibilities that, that get added on. And now it's, you need to subscribe to a handful of certain causes. You need to believe a certain way about certain social issues. In both cases, what they're doing is wrong in two accounts. First of all, they're adding something to faith in Christ. So whatever you, whenever you add something to faith in Christ, you're in trouble. It doesn't matter what you add. In this case, the conservatives add one thing, the liberals add another thing. Secondly, the order is wrong. So, so to put this in theological terms, the belief when you're adding something is that your sanctification, getting better, certain behaviors, is, is going to lead to your justification, your right relationship with God. When in fact, that's not the gospel. That's not the message. <laughs> that's not the good news. That's actually not good news at all, if you think about it. Okay, you believe and you better be good. Well, exactly how good and exactly how often, right? I mean, exactly how much do I need to do uh, to be in a right relationship with God? So, so. What, what the gospel teaches, what Galatians teaches, what Paul's explaining is it is our justification. It is the work of Christ applied to us that leads to our sanctification. So we see this uh, unfolding here, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished, Paul writes, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So the Judaizers are arguing that they're making just a little change. Paul was mostly right. We're just making a little change. We're just adding a little stuff. He didn't tell you everything. Uh, So we're just adding a little bit. And Paul is saying, (laughs) no, that little addition it's, it's a game changer. It's, it's a complete full stop, doesn't work. Once you add that, it's over. And so it's, it's no longer a gospel. It, it turns it into something different. Verse 5, evidently some people uh, are throwing you into confusion, the some people being the Judaizers. Some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel. The word pervert literally means to reverse. So instead of faith equals salvation plus works, it's now faith plus works equals salvation. Completely different equation. Uh, They are uh, trying to pervert the gospel, move in the opposite direction. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. Um, 
as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So in this passage, the word gospel shows up five times. And uh, obviously, uh, we need to understand what the gospel is. What specifically, precisely, <laughs> we need a definition of the gospel. So the word in the Greek, evangelion, is a word that gives us evangelism, evangel. It's, we translate it generally, good news. So what is the good news, specifically? What is the good news? Well, uh, it's worth noting, for starters, that it's news. So it's not insight. It's not advice. It's news, which which implies that it's something we have to be told. It's not something that we can intuit. It's not something we look deep inside ourselves and pull out. Uh, It's good, arguably great. It's hard to imagine you're going to hear better news uh, ever, anywhere. And it is something specific. So the whole letter that Paul is writing is predicated on the fact that they are now getting the gospel wrong, which means that it is something. It's not whatever we want it to be. So today, we we, we sort of want to let anybody not just believe whatever they want to believe, but we sort of are are, are good with anybody. As long as you are sincere... Right, that's the sort of the cultural mood right now. As long as you are sincere in what you believe, and it doesn't hurt anybody, then it's, it's good. So, um, look, we need, in a pluralistic culture, we need to protect people's right to believe whatever they want to believe. Because we want the freedom to believe whatever we want to believe. But there's a difference between saying you have a political right, you have the freedom to believe whatever you want to believe, And this, specifically, is what Jesus is offering. So we need to be very careful in saying, you you might choose to believe whatever you want to believe. This is what Christ is offering. This is the message of the New Testament. This is the message of Christ. This is the offer from God. This is what Christianity teaches. So what specifically is it that Christianity teaches? teaches? What does Christ offer? How are we reconciled to God? How are we justified? How do we get adopted into the family of God? How are our sins forgiven? How do we, how do we gain eternal life? What is it specifically that we are expected to embrace? In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12, uh, Peter says that the angels long to just gaze at the gospel because it's so amazing. They're, they're just transfixed by looking at this uh, good news. And, um, and, and so I, I want to start by saying that the gospel is amazing and it is big. The, the statement that you might have heard is that the gospel is small enough for a toddler to wade into, and it's big enough, it's a pool big enough for an, for a, an elephant to swim in. It is, in the Bible, the gospel gets described and defined 
by so many different writers in so many different ways, using so many different metaphors and coming at it from so many different vantage points, right? Trying to round it out. That we have a number of different ways that we end up condensing it. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul will talk about a gospel to the Gentiles and a gospel to the Jews. And it's not that these are different gospels. It's very clear. Paul's very clear. One gospel, one gospel, one gospel. But he defines them differently. So the gospel to the Jews, and I, I certainly have found this to be true, that the gospel to the Jews is a, is a description or it's a, it's a character, it's a characterization of the offer that is more likely to appeal and resonate with people who have a religious background. So the Jews had, you know, they had the Ten Commandments, they had the law, they had a religious, they, they were coming out of a religious background, and, and the, the explanation of that gospel is one that, that, that talks about your personal sin and how Christ's death pays for your personal sin. The gospel to the Gentiles is, gets described a little bit differently. Now, as opposed to talking about your sin, it talks a little bit more about the challenge that we have, the problem that we have of, of elevating something other than God to be the most important thing in our life. And it also tends to capture not so much individual sins as much as systemic problems, injustice, racism, poverty, other kinds of issues. So I just want to pause and say uh, that, that tightly nailing down the gospel is, is a little bit of a challenge simply because we have so many different ways the biblical writers unpack it and explain it. So uh, I think that what we need to be very careful to do is to let the Bible speak for itself on this point. And since we're in a study of Galatians, I think it's, it's most helpful initially to let Paul's explanation of the gospel lead the way. And I would argue, as I did last week, that in uh, verse 3 of the first chapter, he sort of crams a, a, a version of the gospel into that. And so there we read, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, uh, uh, according to the will of our God and Father. So Christ gave himself for us to rescue us from this present evil age. In the book of Romans, which is where most people would go to, to get the gospel, because Paul has never visited Rome. All the other letters that Paul writes, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Corinthians, Thessalonians, all the letters that Paul writes to churches are churches he's been at. He had not yet been to the church in Rome, and so he explains the basics to the Romans. And so we get the gospel there, and Paul opens Romans 1, 6, saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. And then in the first four chapters, he sort of lays out the gospel. He talks about our problems, our sin, our fallenness. He talks about who Christ is and what Christ has done. Um, there are other places where we get the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, very famously. For we have been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift 
not as a result of anything we do, so we cannot boast about this. We are saved on the basis of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't add to it. We're not contributing to our salvation. We can look in 1 Corinthians 15.1, and uh, the advantage here is that, is that Paul comes out and says, uh, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached. And then later in that chapter, he says, it's of first importance, Christ died for your sins. <laughs> there, there's that definition of the gospel. Christ died for your sins. Now, some would argue that uh, I, I am guilty here of cherry-picking certain verses to describe the gospel. And I'm cherry-picking verses that are, that are presenting a, a simplistic, an individualistic, and sort of a uniquely American spin uh, on the gospel. And that, that to fully appreciate all that the gospel brings and packs in it, we have to understand uh, that it, 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 is, it is what God is going to do, and it's big, and it's not just spiritual, it's material, and it's not just in, in eternity and, and in heaven. It's this world, and it's changing systems. And, it's, it's, and I am sympathetic to that criticism, but I'm, I'm headed down that path because I do want to lay the basics and in, in, in the foundational understanding of the offer that is before us and how it is that God interacts with us. And so I think it's, it's important that uh, we understand, especially in the study of Galatians, how Paul is distilling down the gospel. And so I think we could say that it is Christ substituting for us uh, in our death and, and giving us his, his grace. It is Christ substituting for us. It's the, it's the news that we are more profoundly broken than we dare to admit to ourselves. But that God's love is greater in Christ to us than we could dare possibly comprehend. Or the, the last definition I'll give you The gospel is the loving activity of God and God alone by which we can be forgiven, redeemed, adopted into his family, and sanctified. So, with that as a starting point, what I want to do today is I want to to round that out with eight additional points that I think, I, I hope, I pray, help you understand because, as I said last week, I'm pretty convinced that some of you don't get it. Uh, that you are moral therapeutic deists. And, uh, and that, you know, that's not where you want to be. So I want to I make eight points to help you understand the nature and the characteristics of the offer that God places in front of us. Number one. The good news assumes bad news. The gospel starts with the premise that we are broken by sin. It describes us as being dead, as being helpless. Um, So we are not called sinners because we sin. So 
the problem here is not that you've told some lies or that you've broken some promises or that you don't do all the good that you should do. It's not actually the problem. Those are symptoms of a deeper problem. We have a broken, rebellious heart. We don't honor God as we should, and, and it, it creates a chasm between us and God. Um, the, biblic, the Bible has, has the lowest image of mankind of any worldview out there. So uh, it's, we're made in the image of God. We are highly valued. We are greatly loved, but we are deeply fallen, and we are unable to fix ourselves. So religion assumes that if we try hard enough, and if we try long enough, and if we do the right things, we can make ourselves better. And Christianity says, yeah, no, that's not going to work. You cannot get better. We are too broken. The good news assumes the bad news. The average person thinks that they're doing okay, and that a Christian is someone who follows the teaching and example of Jesus. And the starting premise of Christianity is that, yes, Jesus is a teacher and an example, but he's principally a savior <laughs> because we're drowning and we don't need someone to teach us how to swim at this moment. We need someone to rescue us. So the good news of the gospel begins with bad news. And if we don't accept the bad news, you know, if, if again, if you're not willing to say, yes, I actually am broken, I am a sinner, if, if you're in the camp that says mistakes were made, Right? The problem is Christ didn't die to save mistakers. He died to save sinners. We have to sort of step in and own this. Yes, I have a real problem. Number two, the wound is so deep uh, that we cannot even help in our rescue. We are so broken that we, not, we cannot even contribute to our salvation. So... The gospel not only says that Jesus does it all, it says that we are unable to help. And so uh, I have some charts here um, that, that describe this. This is a classic illustration. Yes, there's, there's a gulf between God and us. So Pelagianism is the, is the idea, and, and it's called Pelagianism after a 5th century British monk called Pelagius who fled Rome when the Roman when Rome was falling he fled Rome and he went down to northern Africa and he ends up in the church with Augustine and he listens to Augustine preach for a while and he says uh, wow Augustine you're not telling people what they need to hear you're not telling people that they need to buck up work hard pray fast discipline themselves and try and earn God's favor and so there's a there's a big dialogue that goes back and forth between Pelagius and Augustine. Augustine writes a number of books against Pelagius of the title of these books. And basically Pelagius, who was a very religious guy, Pelagius said, we need to work hard in order to win God's favor. And if we do, we can build a bridge to God. Our religious activity will allow us to build a bridge to God. Okay, that's Pelagianism. It's not Christianity. So Augustine writes back and says, no, no, no. So Pelagius leaves the scene. We don't actually know what happens to him. But then his followers come along with a modified version, and this is called, very uh, uniquely, creatively, semi-Pelagianism. And my experience is that most people today are semi-Pelagianists. 
Semi-Pelagians. They just don't know it. Don't know what the word means. But basically it says, well, you know what? I'm not that bad. And I actually do a lot of good. And I don't have a big gap to close. I just need a little help. And so there's a little bit here where I need Jesus to fill in. A little bit of debt. A little bit of, uh, of, of shortfall. So most people are semi-Pelagians. So here's the deal. Christianity says something very different from that. Christianity says God reaches our direction. <laughs> we don't move. God comes to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so, so uh, we have to understand, number two, the wounds are so deep we can't even help in our salvation. Number three, salvation is an instantaneous event. So it may feel like a process, and in fact, it may look like a process, and it can be a process because I've got this spectrum up here. There's a, there's a spectrum. We can be particularly far from God at negative four, and we're moving in the direction over time. And it may take a long time for us to move to the point of conversion, or as is in the case of Paul, no time at all. Right? With Paul, he is not looking for God when God knocks him off the horse and he comes to faith. My experience is that it, it took quite a while. Uh, it was hard for me to come to faith and it just didn't, I couldn't get there and I wanted to get there, but I couldn't get there. And so I don't have a story that says on October 14th, uh, you know, 1982, I bowed in my dorm room and accepted Christ as my savior. I don't know when I came to faith in Christ. What I know is there's a period in time where I go, I didn't believe. And then there's a period in time where I go, yes, I do believe. And in between that, there were several years where I was just very conflicted and I'd go to Bible study and then I'd stop and I'd read the Bible and then I'd stop and I'd pray and then I'd stop. And I, and at some point I realized, no, I have, I have made a, a decision. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is very clear that there is this moment, the great exchange, where we transfer to Christ our sin. And it's not just that we're forgiven of our sins. We actually have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. It's not just that we're neutral. Right. In Christ, it's not that he just sees that we're a blank slate. When God looks at me, he doesn't see a blank slate. He sees the righteousness of Christ because there was a transaction. And that transaction happens at a moment in time. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul writes about that in, uh, in his letter to the Romans. So salvation is an instantaneous event. Number four, saying we're saved by grace through faith. Saying we're saved by, by faith alone in Christ alone does not mean that our works don't matter. You might have thought that I said our works don't matter. Our works do not earn us God's love. But our works do matter. I am not saying faith plus works equals salvation. I'm saying faith equals salvation plus works. But what I'm also not saying is Faith equals salvation. I'm saying faith equals salvation plus works. The works are expected. The works confirm. Next week we'll, we'll talk about motivation. Like why do I do any of this? What's my motivation? What should my motivation be? Should I be motivated by rewards in heaven? Like how do I think about that? Isn't that being selfish? So the, 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 there are aspects of works that are important. But the big one for today is that works confirm the faith. 
James writes in James 1, faith without works is dead. It's not a real faith. If you have faith in Christ, you should be able over time to look back and say, I've changed. I think it's hard to see in real time. But we should be able to look and say, God is actually doing something in my life. I sort of surprise myself. Like, I would have thought I would have been really mad, or I would have thought I would have done this, or I would have thought I would have said this, and I didn't say it. Sort of interesting. I'm apparently changing. So faith is what leads to our salvation, but works matter. In addition to helping other people, they confirm what's going on in our heart. Number five. Our experience should be that even as we get better, we realize that we're worse. Okay, so I've got another chart here. This chart shows that at a certain point, the cross is where we come to faith in Christ. And you see out there just a little bit, uh, there's the, the word grace. And for the most part, I think our experience is that we have a view of God and we have a view of where we're at and we say, I need this much grace. I mean, if we were going to define it, we'd go, I need, I need 10x of grace because that's how far short I've fallen. The longer we walk with Christ, the longer we follow God, the bigger God gets, the more majestic, the more holy, the more awesome, the more amazing, and the more we realize I'm a whole lot worse than I thought. Like, the problems I've got are a lot deeper than I thought. And even my best efforts are pretty conflicted and pretty compromised. And so we realize even, and I don't have an arrow here to show our behavior, but even as our behavior is getting better, we realize we need more grace than we ever thought. And I would say this. If you think you are better than most people, you don't get it. If you think you are better than your non-Christian neighbor, you don't get it. Why would you think you're better than your non-Christian neighbor? Why would you think you're a better, you know, neighbor or friend or father or mother or husband or wife or whoever? Why would you think you're better? The whole point is, no, we're not better. We're broken. And the experience of following after Christ is, is to realize more and more how good God is and how desperately we need God's love and grace because we're broken. Number seven, the gospel and grace are not just for non-Christians. So I used to think, it was wrong on this, I used to think that uh, the gospel was what you needed in order to come to faith, and then after that you moved on from milk, you moved to meat, you moved to you know, the, the real meat of, of what God was teaching. No, the gospel is the meat, it's the milk, it's the meat, it's the dessert, We need over and over to remind ourselves of the gospel, that God's love is unconditional and it's based on Christ. And that, that, that just, we just need to play that loop over and over because it's got to change how we think. Finally, number eight, having spent all this time talking about the gospel, I want to say, don't be amazed with the gospel. Be amazed with Christ. Uh, Michael Reeves wrote in this book, Rejoicing in Christ. We naturally gravitate, it seems, to anything but Jesus. And Christians almost as much as anyone, whether it's Christian worldview, grace, the Bible, or the gospel, as if they were things in themselves that could save us. Even the cross can get abstracted from Jesus, as if 
uh, the wood had some power of its own. Other things, wonderful things, vital concepts, beautiful discoveries so easily edged Jesus aside. Precious theological concepts meant to describe him and his work get treated as things in their own right. He becomes just another brick in the wall. But the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. So we're going to end with a song. And this is uh, a song written by David Crowder. Uh, And I heard it a couple months ago when I was pulling together this series. And I did something uncharacteristic for me at the time, and that is I just put it on a loop, and I would probably listen to it 20 times in a row because I thought it so, so powerfully captured the gospel. And that is our hope is in Jesus. So I've asked, uh, I've asked at all the campuses for this to be played.